Hello and welcome to the October 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And we're going to suspend uh, disbelief here for a moment. This is We're taping a little late, but we're going to pretend that all the major developments that have that have occurred, like as of a day or two ago, are not the subject of this podcast. Is that fair, Art? Yes, I will work very hard not to refer to the extraordinary legal developments <laughs> of the past few days. Okay. And for those who are wondering what that is, stay tuned for the November podcast right. version. Okay, so the lead story in the October issue. Let's start with that, as we always start with the lead story. That story concerns some heartening news out of the U.S. District Court for Massachusetts in the case of Koselik v. Spencer, and that is for the first time a federal court has ordered a state prison system to provide gender reassignment surgery for a transgender inmate. In this case, District Judge Mark Wolf found that the denial of such surgery violated Koselik's right as a prisoner to be free of cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Art, as just mentioned, the judge here characterized the denial of the surgery itself as a form of cruel and unusual punishment. Can you give us a sense of how that judge reaches the determination? And in other words, how bad was life for Michelle Koselik here, a transgender inmate, uh, essentially being forced to continue living life within prison as a man? Okay. Uh, Well, I think we have to view this case in context, of course, that Koselik is serving a life sentence without any hope of parole for the murder of his wife. Uh, That is, before uh, being imprisoned, Koselik uh, was found guilty of, of murdering the wife, and uh, after becoming a Massachusetts state inmate, Koselik asked for treatment for gender identity disorder, uh, sought hormone treatment. That was denied. That was litigated. That went up to Judge Wolf, who ordered the hormone treatment, uh, then uh, filed uh, a claim uh, because the prison refused to provide electrolysis uh, because he had the hormone treatment dressing as a woman, presenting as a woman, wants to get rid of that male hair pattern on her body, and they wouldn't go for it. I mean, they, they've, they've been fighting her every step of the way on this. And uh, the issue for the judge is that under the Eighth Amendment, uh, prisoners are not at liberty to take care of their personal lives in any way. They're in the custody of the state. They can't just uh, order up. Let's say a, a prisoner has resources, and they like to furnish their cell with better furniture. They can't just, you know, call out an order in. They're they're totally at the at the uh, mercy of the state. The state controls what they can do, where they can go, and the state controls whether they can get medical treatment. And so, uh, the uh, federal courts have found that under the Eighth Amendment, if a an inmate has a serious medical condition, it is the obligation of the prison to provide appropriate medical treatment. And uh, What's appropriate is determined by the standards of the medical profession. And with that established, I mean, do we see cases like this in other contexts? I mean, is the withholding of surgery something that comes up in – I'm not talking about specifically in the context of gender reassignment surgery, but the idea of prison officials having some medical evidence, in this case a lot because of the growing medical consensus of what it means to have gender identity disorder. But um, have we seen prison officials? Like, for instance, let's just say someone has cancer, uh, and we're not going to pay for that needed surgery. No, they, they, if, if, someone, if someone needs surgery because they have a life-threatening condition and the uh, medical staff of the prison determines that surgery is needed, 
then surgery has to be provided, usually by uh, sending them out to a hospital with which the prison has some kind of uh, working relationship. But the area where we've seen this come up over the past uh, 20, 30 years is the AIDS epidemic because there has been a big epidemic of HIV in prisons. Uh, we incarcerate a lot of people for drug use, uh, people who shared injecting uh, equipment or transmitting HIV. And as new medications became available, there was a question, do prisons have to su supply this expensive new medication for inmates living with HIV? And ultimately, the federal court said yes. It's expensive stuff, but uh, most of these people are not in for life. Most of these people are going to go back out into the community again at some point. And they said that the prison has an obligation to provide the current consensus of the medical profession of what is appropriate treatment, uh, even if it's expensive. That's not a basis for denying necessary medical treatment. So the issue in the transgender case is what is necessary medical treatment? Because we've gotten over the first hurdle in that there seems now to be a consensus among federal courts presented with transgender inmate cases that gender identity disorder is a serious medical condition. So most of the debate centers around what are the prison's obligations with respect to treatment. And here, Judge Wolf's decision is very sensitive to the factual nuances of, the, of a particular case. He's not holding that as a matter of law under the Eighth Amendment, every transgender inmate is entitled to sex reassignment surgery at the expense of the state. He's saying we have to look at the individual inmate the medical staff of the prison has to evaluate that inmate and determine what is the necessary treatment for that inmate. So in the case of Koselik, it seems that she has attempted suicide, she's attempted self-castration. Uh, the medical staff of the Massachusetts Department of Corrections has determined that the appropriate treatment for her is sex reassignment surgery. And the problem has come at the political level of the apartment, at the commissioner level. Well, the, and I, I, I'm glad you're, you're jumping to that, and I want to be specific on that. Um, and I, I said to you, in writing at least, perhaps I'm being naive and even asking this question, but yeah. uh, I guess I still found it surprising, and the court does detail it, and I, I, it sounds like you're about to speak to it, but the idea that there was a, a fair amount of doubt that this decision, you know, the initial refusals of all these different treatments, a fair amount of doubt by the court that it had anything to do with sort of their legitimate penological interests, but right. rather that perhaps some local officials and politicians and others did not want to take a position that in their jurisdiction or perhaps their perception of, of their jurisdiction would find not favorable, meaning why are we spending all this money on these expensive procedures right. for the transgender population? And I would imagine they wouldn't even refer well, to the population in and, that way. And I'm not, but I'm not, I think in, a lot of this focuses on the facts of this case. I mean, they're saying, all right, Michelle Kaselik is in for life, never going to go out. Oh, so you, you, you would think it has more think, to do with what the crime was, to do with the it. murder, it, I mean, right? It was murder, okay. it's a life sentence. They're saying Fair she's enough. going to be locked up for the rest of her life. Why are we spending all this money uh, to turn her physically into a woman? Well, well, we're, we... we're at the point now where she's getting hormone treatment. I mean, they were, they were fighting that too because many prisons have long had a rule that they will maintain treatment. That is, if you come in and at the time you're incarcerated, you were already receiving hormone treatment, they'll continue it. And it was even a battle to get prisons to do that uh, because they all – we're characterizing it as, as a cosmetic procedure, right, right, right. not a necessary medical procedure. But, you know, all right, so we'll maintain you on hormones, but we won't start you on hormones. And Kaselik had to fight that battle 
because she wasn't on hormone treatment when she was incarcerated. Okay, so in this particular instance, you might suggest that yeah. perhaps the, the grisly murder at the center of this case may be that as responsible for the... Okay, certainly, they, certainly the adverse political comments. Well, I mean, we've seen, though, we've seen other cases where right. clearly it's not about the crime. Right. It's and, about the in fact, we've had gender cases, identity of the, of the know, person. We, we've had cases where it was white-collar crime. It wasn't uh, murder or something like that. It was fraud or, mm-hmm. or credit card fraud or bad checks or things like that. Uh, and because people can be in for a variety of things, uh, and what we have now is uh, a situation where the court is saying that the medical concerns have to be met unless there is a penological reason, a reason having to do with the health and safety of the prison. And one of the arguments that the Department of Corrections has made over time is that we're going to keep Koselik in a men's prison. And we're afraid, first they were making the argument with the, with the hormones and everything, we're afraid we're setting up for sexual assault, things of that sort. And so Kosilik has been receiving hormone treatment, has been dressing and presenting as a woman for years now. And has not encountered problems. Has not had a problem yeah. in, in the prison. They also articulate, I mean, uh, maybe I'm viewing them a little skeptically, uh, but I think one of their arguments was also that they feared that she would... Um, she would escape when she was being well, transferred to the yeah, hospital. Yeah, the problem for is. I mean, does yeah, that make any sense? Well, the problem is they can't do the surgery in the prison. They right. don't have the facilities. They'd have to go to a hospital, and they say there's a possibility she may escape. And I'm thinking, well, this is odd. She has this compulsion that she has to get rid of her male genitals, and the state's going to pay for it, but not if she escapes. If she escapes, how's she going to get this <laughs> right, done? That's fair. Uh, you know, is she going to hold well, up someone I, I to get the money? A, I'm a little skeptical because. Um, the prison system, sort of their bread and butter, is making sure that perhaps they don't escape. And this is not a middle-of-the-night situation. This is we're going to take this person to another facility where presumably right. they could ensure that she does not escape. But right. anyway. But, you know, you and I, we both go to the movies. We see the prison yes. escapes happen all the time. That's right. She will jump onto a, uh, into yeah. a lake and uh, But But this case, this case is, in a certain sense, what makes it our lead story because normally we wouldn't make our lead story out of a district court decision. But it is the first case that I'm aware of in which a court has actually ordered that a prison system provide gender reassignment surgery. Uh, now, as I point out in the story, uh, there is some prior precedent that's relevant on the, on the point. There is a Seventh Circuit decision involving a Wisconsin law that uh, basically said that no public money can be used for any gender identity treatment. Including in hormone therapy. Including yeah. hormones, including surgery. Uh, and that was held unconstitutional by the Seventh Circuit. They said under the Eighth Amendment, if hormone treatment is, which was what was at, at issue in the case, actually, uh, the the only uh, complaint that was brought by the plaintiffs in that case was that they were being denied hormone treatment, or actually they were being told they were going to be discontinued on hormone treatment and have to go through withdrawal, which is uh, not a pretty thing to contemplate. Uh, so uh, the court didn't have to take a position on uh, surgery in that case. Uh, they ordered that the hormone treatment be made available. But the court said that it violates the Eighth Amendment for a state to categorically rule out funding of necessary medical treatment for inmates. Uh, so there is that precedent here. And then, of course, there's the recent tax court decision finding that gender reassignment surgery is not just a cosmetic procedure, but it's a necessary medical procedure for people who are diagnosed with gender identity disorder that is severe enough to require surgical alteration. Let me let me close then with a question I think I've asked you once before, um, and that's 
I mean, I mean, this is always true. Maybe this is more a question, uh, a commentary built into a question about the nature of American health care. But we do have this result now that in this particular context, a transgender inmate perhaps has more ability to get the required medical attention that she needs right. than perhaps someone who either has insurance that doesn't cover this kind of procedure or has no insurance at all. So it's this strange outcome, which maybe is not so strange for those of us well, who have looked at prison cases right. where people get medical care there where perhaps if they weren't in the population, they right. would be have no access here. But it seems like a strange result to me that we now have in some ways better care in prison than out of it. You've yeah. summed it up very well. well okay. <laughs> and should I'm I know, to help you get to the point? Should I right? no longer be surprised by that? Uh, well, you know that. That's, and, and and what's the impact? See, of that? that's an excellent point. And I know that there has been some progress in getting major corporations to amend their employee benefit plans to uh, include full coverage for transgender health issues. And uh, I think ultimately. As our society evolves on this issue, we should see Medicaid should be uh, providing the complete range of necessary medical treatment for transgender people. Medicare should be doing it. And uh, under the uh, Affordable Health Care Act and the extension of private insurance to people who don't have it, I think that should be part of the standard, that uh, that gender identity disorder is a serious medical condition. And depending – how severe it is for the particular individual, and it seems there is a spectrum of severity. Uh, it may be that in some cases, sex reassignment surgery is a necessary medical procedure for the mental and physical health of that individual. Well said, Art. Let's uh, leave it there for this case. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a California case concerning a challenge to an Avis discount program. Discounts provided to members of two LGBT organizations and not to folks who aren't in those organizations. Stay with us. You want to hear all the interesting facts in that one. We're back discussing a uh, fascinating case. They're all fascinating, but I found this one very fascinating. That in some ways involves an argument of, uh, I think it's fair to say, reverse sexual orientation discrimination, or at least allegations of that. And it involves corporate discounts, which all of us love and cherish, so it makes it doubly interesting. Specifically, the case is... Help me with the name. Evanchik? Evanchik. Evanchik versus Avis Rent-A-Car System. And in this case, uh, there's claims, a sexual orientation discrimination claim brought by a heterosexual woman who did not receive the courtesy discount that Avis was extending to members of the International Gay and Lesbian Travel Association and the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. So this case concerns a, a, a motion to dismiss at this stage before U.S. District Court Judge Robert Benitez. And um, the claim is ultimately based on a California civil rights statute. So, um, Art, let's let's start with what exactly that is. Okay, actually, two statutes. Okay, uh, I was focusing on the primary yes. one. In, in in California, unlike some other states, in some states, the general civil rights or human rights law covers employment, housing, public accommodations, credit, various things. California has separate statutes. They have the Fair Employment and Housing Code which covers housing and employment, and they have the Unruh Civil Rights Act, which covers public accommodations. And uh, the public accommodations law now specifically forbids businesses from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation in providing goods and services. And uh, Lynn Evanchik went into an Avis uh, uh, location in San Diego in July 2011, and she rented a car. And the court doesn't go into the details of how she subsequently found out that if she had been a member of one of these two gay organizations, she would have gotten a substantial discount. 
but when she found out about it, she was outraged, and she contacted Avis and asked for the discount after the fact. And they said, no, you know, you usually you have to ask a discount when you, when yeah, you go it's, in it's to rent the car. Yeah. So, uh, so she filed suit. You, under usually the you have statute. to be a member of the group that gets right. the discount. Too. Right. So all discount programs but, but, are at issue in this case. Well, no. Well, at least that only discount, protected class only considerations. Dis- yeah, only discount yeah. because, for example, uh, those of us who are members of the American Bar Association, if you look at your membership card, you'll see your Hertz discount number. Right, right. You know, and, and Which, what is it? Do you, is it a general discount? I think for any member of the ABA, oh, okay. it's like 10 or 15 percent. So you can't give the code on the air for uh, No, I'm not going to give the code on the air okay. for everyone who wants my discount. I think you have to show the card, too. I don't okay. think you can just say it's it. It's the Arlander discount. Uh, but, uh, well, does Legal have any discount <laughs> you know, arrangements with we, businesses? We do, and there are secret codes. Yeah, and if, if Legal has discount arrangements and, and New York's human rights law. Don't sh- don't. Brad, I'm not going to give people ideas. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> no, but we, that brings us. I'm going to. But this we, is an issue. This All brings right. us to so, an important point about so membership in the organization. Right. So, so let's so let's talk about this. Uh, there is a case that uh, Ms. Evanchik was basing her claim on called uh, Quare versus Metro Car Wash, and it seems that Metro Car Wash gave discounts to women. That is, if a woman brought in a car to be washed, they would charge less than a man, and a man complained about this. And the case went to the California Supreme Court in 1985, and the California court said uh, that this was sex discrimination by a place of public accommodation. And in illustrating the point, they said, it would be no less a violation of the act for an entrepreneur to charge all homosexuals reduced rates Mm. in his or her restaurant or hotel in order to encourage one group's patronage and thereby increase profit. Prescience on the part of that group. So, yeah. So this is, you know, and imagine in 1985, anticipating that a business <laughs> would give dif- discounts to gay people. Rather than refusing service. Right. 1985. <laughs> but, of course, in California, as of 1985, at least some municipalities did ban Right. So it wasn't totally out Although of the I realm the, of possibility. I think the state ban came later. Yeah. But uh, in any event, so she has a plausible argument if, in fact – they're discriminating based on sexual orientation. Now, Avis, in moving to dismiss, said, we don't care about the sexual orientation of anybody. We have a deal with these organizations to give discounts to their members. We have no idea whether she's a member. We have no idea whether they accept or don't accept. You know, that's that's something that could be found out later. But the point is, we're not discriminating based on sexual orientation. What we're doing is making deals with various membership organizations to give discounts to their members. And if she wants a discount, she can join an organization. But they said, we're not distinguishing based on sexual orientation as such. And we have no idea what the sexual orientation is of anybody who shows us a membership card of any of these organizations. So they're moving to dismiss here. And the court says, well, on a motion to dismiss, Mm. we have to treat, just for the purposes of the motion, as true the allegations of the complaint and ask whether the allegations of the complaint state a claim. And she is alleging she was denied the discount because she's not gay. But can I, I – I, you know this better than I do perhaps. Uh, not perhaps. Most certainly know it better than I do. <laughs> Did she so allege – no, no, I'm going to. Did she allege that, allege that she tried to become a member of the organization? No. So I she's, don't know why, why – she's, she's just saying this whole discount arrangement violates right, the understatement. But if those, if those two organizations would let anyone become a member? Well, ultimately, I think – that Avis is going to win a motion for summary judgment in okay. this case. On what basis, though? Be- because I think ultimately it will be undisputed 
that these organizations allow anyone to join. So you do see that dues. as a key, key I think thing. that's a key. If, okay. if these organizations are only open to gay people, then there might be something based on the, the Metro car wash case. There might be some kind of argument of sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, really, it's she's part of a class that just refuses to pay dues. And she's a, she wants the discount without paying the dues. Possibly. Maybe she's a disaffected lesbian who thinks that these organizations, you know, <laughs> that these organizations are dominated by gay men. But I, I wouldn't speculate I on know. that. You just did. But um, I, uh, I don't know anything about her sexual orientation. Yeah, but there's something lurking here. I mean, Avis points it out in the court. Yeah. Doesn't make her – Yeah, that, this is a strike suit of some sort. This is yeah. the professional plaintiff, so to speak. Yeah. The, they, the, the plaintiff's bar uh, pushing yeah. – that this was not just an organic – This is a way – She's a really aggrieved person. This is a way to get back at the gay lesbian chamber of commerce or something. Uh, apparently. And, and, or and back, said, or, uh, back they at said, They said she's, she's represented by bounty hunting lawyers who are looking for uh, a payload at the end of this case. And the court says that's not for us. That's not yeah. that's not how you determine a legal yeah. suit, which sounds right to me. But, you know, there is this thing where Avis argues, and at first, my first perception was this is a bad argument, but I, I just want to hear your thoughts of it. But they say the, the legislative purpose of this Civil Rights Act, the, the, the statute that we're talking about, right, is to prevent unequal treatment for disadvantaged people. Right, it's sort of making the yeah. case that this is not about protecting, for lack of a better way to say it, this is not about protecting heterosexual women. That's not what this this statute's about. How have courts treated that? Because this obviously has to come up a lot, where people are, who are not members of perhaps the class that right. one imagines the the statute was passed to attend. And here the court says, well, you have to look at the plain well, language of the statute, obviously. Right. Well, well, that's that's because, and I think it's partly for purposes of equal protection, that we don't generally have protected classes under civil rights statutes. What we have are forbidden grounds of discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, certainly the main motivation of Congress in passing the Civil Rights Act of 64, which was the first major federal uh, civil rights act involving employment, it was basically to protect racial minorities and women from being excluded from jobs that they wanted to do and were qualified to do, and, and similarly the public accommodations provisions and things of that sort. Uh, that was probably the main motivation. I mean, no one was arguing that white people as a class were being discriminated against. But what Congress did is the way they wrote the statute, they said, you may not discriminate based on someone's race. You may not discriminate based on someone's sex or someone's national origin or their religion. Uh, so everyone is protected. Everyone is in the protected class because there isn't a protected class. Now, some civil rights statutes do have a protected class because of the way they define it, and the age discrimination at, uh, on the federal level does that. You have to be at least 40 years old to be protected from discrimination mm -hmm. based on age. So there is a protected class. It's everyone over age 40. Uh, but for race, for sex, we don't have protected classes. We have forbidden grounds. And so this is a fundamental conceptual misunderstanding on the part of Avis in this argument uh, because it doesn't matter what motivated the legislature to pass the Unruh statute. What matters is what the statute says. And the statute says you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation in a place of public accommodation, which is uh, any business. Fair enough. And the last thing, uh, this is more of a question of strategy. Was was there not a lot of opportunities for Avis to just moot this whole thing by giving the discount? I mean, or was it just they weren't sure they were dealing with essentially someone geared up to – well, there may be contractual issues here. I would I would assume that they have a contract with these two gay organizations to give the discounts to their members. And, uh, in fact, in the case itself, it indicates they have a contract with Hilton Hotels to give discounts to people who stay at Hilton Hotels. They have lots of these marketing right, deals right. all over the place. And uh, I think 
their view would be if you want a discount from Avis, you enter into an agreement with someone who has a discount agreement with Avis. I thought maybe that they would be – there would be the proviso or, or, or if you seem like you're going to sue yeah. us, we might extend you the discount. Yeah, it, it probably made sense for them to settle this case because it's probably just a few hundred bucks at stake. Right, but, but, but the point is – but, but, and this is part of their argument. They're saying she's not suing them because she wants a few hundred bucks. She's suing them because she wants us to end the discount for gay people. That this is an ideologically motivated lawsuit, and that's part of their argument. You do and have to give credit. I mean, if you're really, if, if that is part of it, I mean, but to go not? after every angle of, yeah. you know, with anti-LGBT hostility, this is right. yet another front. Go after the discounts. Right. <laughs> okay. Shut down the discounts. <laughs> Shut down the discounts. All right. Make gay people pay full price. Exactly. Cars. And more, yes. not just full price. More. I bet she's going to go after our frequent flyer miles uh, next. It's it's you know, it, no one quits. It just keeps coming. All right. We're going to leave it there. We'll take another short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing a um, slightly more serious case between two dads uh, concerning the relocation of their child to the state of Georgia after that couple split. Stay with us. We're back discussing the case of uh, AGVRR out of New Jersey. Uh, this is another dispute concerning a child of a same concerning a child of a same-sex couple and what happens after the parents' relationship ends badly. Here, it's two men who ultimately adopted a child in 2005. Uh, the relationship between the men soured, and it led to a separation. In 2009, they entered into a consent order pending trial for shared custody of the child, and for reasons we'll get into as we discuss this case. A.G. ultimately sought to move himself, the child, and a subsequent husband to the state of Georgia. R.R. objected to the relocation for some reasons we'll discuss, but he raised um, an interesting argument that we'll spend some time on relating to Georgia's treatment, or really likely treatment, of LGBT families in that state. Um, Art, on that score, describe for us the argument um, about specifically relating to the state of Georgia, and, and also whether it's a novel one or one we'll actually be seeing more of in future cases? Well, Georgia is a defensive marriage state. That is, Georgia is a state that has a constitutional amendment and statutes that forbid recognizing uh, same-sex marriages. And uh, there is some fear in this case uh, because this child was adopted by both parents in New Jersey, a state that allows second-parent adoption, uh, allows uh, same-sex couples to jointly adopt. Uh, there's a fear that uh, the parental rights of R.R. will not be respected when he goes down to Georgia if he happens to be visiting in Georgia with the child and is in a situation where he wants his parental rights to be recognized. Uh, so, uh, And the problem is exacerbated by a recent decision in the Fifth Circuit in the Adar case uh, holding that federal courts do not have jurisdiction to entertain full faith and credit claims against state officials. That was in the context of having a birth certificate a, amended yeah, to that, show. That was an adoption case. Yeah. That was that was actually a uh, couple who adopted a child in New York, a gay male couple who adopted a child in New York, but the child was born in Louisiana. And so in order to get a new birth certificate showing both of them as the legal parents, they had to apply to Louisiana. Uh, the Louisiana refused to give them a certificate. They only wanted one name on the certificate. Uh, and in the ensuing litigation – a federal district judge ruled in their favor and said that full faith and credit requires Louisiana to issue the new birth certificate. And the Fifth Circuit, a three-judge panel, affirmed, and then it went on bank on petition from the state of Louisiana, and they reversed. 
and they said the full faith and credit clause is binding on state courts, and so you should have sued in state court. But they also said, and this is the point that causes some consternation uh, for this case, uh, they also said that the refusal to put the name on the birth certificate did not strike them as a violation of full faith and credit. It was just their refusal to enforce, it, to force refusal, them to do it. Yeah, they, they said as long as they will uh, admit that the child was legally adopted in New York, that's all they have to do. It sort of makes a mockery of the meaning of being on the birth certificate, doesn't yeah, it? Well, it's sort of strange. And the birth certificate right. is a significant document with a child, right. you know, for enrolling them in school, for hospitals. And this, to, to piggyback Getting on a, a previous discussion yeah. we had, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but that seemed to get caught up in local politics as well, the decision so. of the uh, local uh, birth certificate uh, folks in charge of that yes. that this, part of things. There's so, a lot of politics. So, so in this case, uh, Judge Mary Thurber, who's the New Jersey Superior Court judge, who she had issued her ruling on August 9th, from the bench, but she said she would issue an opinion at a later date, and our law note story is based on the written opinion that she issued on September 21st. It actually turns out that, that shortly after she issued her opinion from the bench in August, AG moved with the child to Atlanta, and so they've been down there. And, and just on, on her analysis, I mean, she does spend a lot of time, I mean, she applies what would you describe as, it, it's a typical... 11-factor test or whatever it is for assessing, you know, you always assess when there's a custody issue here, the, the right. relocation petition and the objections. And as part of that, she does spend a good time assessing this specific yeah, objection. She ultimately says, dis, you know, decides right. that she, you know, that she has, it almost had an air of it's a little premature to just assume that Georgia will not respect their rights. And on top of that, if, if your worst fears are realized, I will retain jurisdiction. You can come back to New Jersey. Right. And I was wondering if you could speak well, to Well, because to under that. the uniform parentage laws that, that all the relevant states here seem to have adopted, the court that has original jurisdiction over the issue retains jurisdiction over the issue, and their orders will be enforceable in all of the states that have the Uniform Act. Uh, we've, we've seen that at work in this, this ongoing dispute of uh, the uh, women from Vermont and mm -hmm. the controversy with the Virginia court. Uh, that one isn't resolved yet because the uh, the mother, one of the mothers and the child are still somewhere in South America, as to which there's a lot of speculation. But in uh, in this case, the judge found it was clear that AG had a legitimate reason for wanting to move. Yeah, he, this, he it wasn't just out of spite. He'd been yeah. performing in a Broadway musical, uh, and to preserve his anonymity, we won't mention which musical. He was performing in a Broadway musical, and he suffered an injury. And he couldn't continue to perform. He wanted to continue to work as an actor. And after he did some uh, some research and looking around, he decided that Atlanta was a good place to try to pick up his career. And he actually got a, a good offer that he wanted to take up in Atlanta. Also, since he split up with RR, he was married in New York to another man. Uh, and his new husband was also willing to move uh, to Atlanta. And the, uh, the various factors that the judge has to weigh, she has to, has to ask, is there a legitimate reason to move? Is it in the best interest of the child to be with this father as opposed to that father? It turns out RR is sort of the economically weaker one in, in, the, uh, in the relationship. Uh, he had fallen behind several times in his child support payments because AG had uh, residential custody. RR was supposed to make child support payments, and he was falling behind. Uh, it, it did seem overall to the judge that it was in the best interest of the child to be with AG and AG's husband. Uh, but it's very important factor that RR should be able to maintain his parental relationship. 
And so to assure that, the judge orders that AG subsidize the cost of the child traveling up to New Jersey to see RR or for RR to come down to New Jersey and stay over in a hotel in order to see the child. So AG is going to be paying for the privilege of relocating by financing his partner's ability to maintain contact. They also said they would set up a Skype connection so that there would be regular Skype, uh, you know, visual and, and audio. Let me um, – as you're, as you're talking, I'm wondering – this is something I didn't think about as I was reading, reading this, and maybe this is the last question on this. I guess as a practitioner point, I mean, should LGBT couples that are having kids, uh, if they should be fortunate enough or wise enough uh, or both to – or able enough to afford an attorney to help them with their uh, adoptions and, and, and family planning, whether it's adoption or surrogacy, et cetera, should the idea of a, an agreement ahead of time of not moving to a you know a mini doma state be something that sometimes is part of things? I mean, we're seeing some of these things where one you know yeah. things go bad and people move to states where the new issues emerge because well, of the the laws there. Well, life is unpredictable, and mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know how much you could anticipate this. Uh, it would be interesting to know whether lawyers who specialize in LGBT family law have actually been drafting agreements that would cover these issues. It, it might be prudent to make the agreements at a time when the parties are well, on sure, that Well, sure. That would be the time you yes. have to do it, right. Right. Um, but uh, it just occurs to me that, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen this, right? I mean, no, I'm sure this issue has come up. This is, this is one of the first cases I've seen that were actually is litigated like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is likely that if they encountered problems in Georgia, uh, they might even find the Georgia courts would be receptive. Uh, well, that seems to be what the judge – the, the judge yeah. seems to think that would be the case. Yeah. But it's, who it's knows? Hard to tell. They, they, they did find there was one prior Georgia decision that was cited in the opinion, relatively recent, a Georgia appellate decision, which seemed to cast doubt on the legal status of out-of-state adoptions by same-sex parents under Georgia law. But it wasn't a direct ruling on the merits. It went off on other grounds. So it's some dicta in there that looked troubling. Uh, so it's hard to know what's going to happen in this case. But – you may be writing about the next phase yeah. of this litigation when yeah. they end up it's back possible. in Jersey. Well, uh, there's, there was no indication at the time that we went to press on the story whether RR was going to try to appeal this to the New Jersey Appellate Division. All right. Anything else on this? I think we've covered it. All right. Perfect. So we're going to break for the last time, and we will finish the podcast with our Of Note segment, which is supposed to be short, snippy, interesting piece of additional news that one Art Leonard did not get a chance to talk about during the first three stories. Short and snippy. Short you agree? agree. Okay, we'll be back with Short and Snippy. We're back to finish the podcast with our Of Note segment, and I'm going to give Art Leonard the exclusive honor of Of Note for this session. That doesn't mean you get to do three or two Of Notes, but I'm going to remain silent. Okay. The LGBT legal world was waiting (laughs) with bated breath on September 24th to see what the U.S. Supreme Court would do with all these cert petitions. And I think we've, we've, cert petitions? we've mentioned that there are cert petitions pending on Proposition 8. Oh, there are yes. cert petitions pending on DOMA. There's a cert petition pending on domestic partnership benefits in you Arizona. You were very jazzed up about there's, all yeah, that. Yeah, there's all this time. stuff. And, and the Supreme Court had listed all of these cases were going to be considered when they got together one week before the beginning of their October term to review all the cert petitions from the summer. And we were all waiting to see, are they going to grant cert? Are they going to agree to review any of these gay rights cases? And they didn't make any announcement on any of those, but they did deny cert in two other cases that no one was really focusing on. One was uh, the case of Pinter versus the city of New York, 
which involved a gay man who was entrapped by a New York City undercover police officer and charged with prostitution, uh, a charge that was totally ridiculous and fabricated uh, under the circumstances. And uh, when the, the case was finally dismissed, he sued the city of New York for false arrest and malicious prosecution and a whole bunch of tort claims. And he sued the officer as well. And uh, the Second Circuit granted the city's motion to dismiss some of the claims on grounds of immunity, that the officer uh, had something approaching probable cause to arrest him, uh, that, that an officer under the circumstances could have believed that maybe he had a basis to arrest this guy. Short and snippy, you're telling me. So, <laughs> so, so the Second Circuit uh, rejected that part of his claim, and he asked the Supreme Court to review it, and they said no. And the other one that I would mention, very, very short and snippy, the National Organization for Marriage, which is funding a lot of the anti-gay marriage initiatives uh, and is fighting against the main marriage initiative, they want to keep the identity of their donor secret. And they have this ongoing litigation with the state of Maine, which says that uh, political action groups like this have to file the identity of their donors with the state, and it's made public, and they're going back and forth on this. And uh, the First Circuit has twice rejected their attempts to keep, it to keep it secret, secret, and they petitioned the Supreme Court for a second time, and the Supreme Court turned them down. So, uh, and they're still arguing. They still haven't filed their thing, and the election is in a few weeks as we as we're recording this. And I, I take it the lack of an announcement about all our major cases. All uh, our major we, cases. Well, uh, can you read anything into that? Uh, one thing I read into it is that the Justice Department, the Solicitor General, filed a cert petition in the middle of September in the two cases uh, in which district judges in Connecticut and New York ruled DOMA unconstitutional. And when they filed the petition, that gave 30 days for the other parties to file a response. So that goes beyond September 24th. So the court decided to put those on hold until all the papers were complete. So there'll be no, is it, it, we will not so see an announcement before the presidential election. Probably, probably no election before the presidential election. Well, the, no, no announcement. No announcement by the, the court. Petitions. Yeah. No announcement on the cert petitions. Uh, Technically, they can make an announcement on the Arizona case or they could uh, make an announcement on the Prop 8 case because all the papers are in on those. But there is some speculation that the court is seeing these as all one big related bunch of cases. Yeah, and in some ways it keeps them out of the, It keeps them out the, of the issue while it's politically hot for the election, which may be prudent. May be prudent. Okay. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. I encourage everyone to visit the new legal.org, L-E-G-A-L.org. If you've been to our site pre- previously, delete your cache, refresh your browser, maybe try a new web browser, um, whatever it takes to see the new legal.org. And there you can read the latest issue of Law Notes. If you're a member or a subscriber by visiting us there, to read back issues, old ones, not the one right off the hot off the presses, you can visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>